Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, and today's show is a very, very special one. Not only is this our 10th episode of the podcast, a big thank you to all our listeners for support thus far, but we have the amazing opportunity to sit down with one of the brightest and most influential thinkers in the investment management industry to discuss one of the most important issues affecting compliance officers today. For many of our listeners, there is perhaps no more important single topic than that of CCO liability. It represents our very livelihood, our lifeline. There will be no headline section today, no final bit to close out our show. Our sole focus will be on the words of Commissioner Peirce, helping to move the conversation on this important topic forward and bridging a dialogue between the regulators and the industry. As we move to the interview portion of today's show, I'd like to start by offering a few relevant quotes from a recent speech given by SEC Commissioner Peirce at the 2020 National Society of Compliance Professionals National Conference. In an increasingly complex regulatory environment, and with the additional complications caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, a good working relationship between compliance officers at regulated entities and our staff in the Commission's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations is more important than ever. Under the leadership of Pete Driscoll, OC has sought to deepen that relationship, among other things, recognizing the unique difficulties of compliance during a pandemic in which everyone is being asked to function virtually. OC has continued to provide relevant guidance. Today, though, rather than focusing on compliance during COVID, I would like to focus on a concern that is not new, the question of how to define the parameters of personal liability for compliance officers. Near the end of my remarks in 2018, I spoke briefly about the role that the Commission's Division of Enforcement plays with respect to compliance functions. I noted that I shared the concerns expressed in some quarters that the increasing specter of personal liability could cause talented individuals to forego a career in compliance, among other negative effects. Those concerns have increased over the past two years. Compliance officers' responsibilities are growing, but the nature of the liability they face in executing those responsibilities remains unclear. I hope that my remarks today can help to foster feedback from you and your compliance colleagues, which in turn can help me better perceive what useful formal guidance on the topic of individual compliance officer liability might look like. Commissioner Peirce has been absolutely instrumental in advancing the conversation of CCO liability, and we are incredibly pleased to welcome here into the show today to welcome her into the show today to discuss this very important issue. Commissioner Peirce, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the Compliance and Context podcast. Patrick, it's a real delight to be with you today. And of course, I have to start with my standard disclaimer, which is that the views that I represent are my own views and not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we dive into the questions, a brief background. Commissioner Peirce was appointed by President Donald J. Trump to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and was sworn in on January 11, 2018. Prior to joining the SEC, Commissioner Peirce conducted research on the regulation of financial, of financial markets 
at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She was a senior counsel on the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, where she advised ranking member Richard Shelby and other members of the Committee on Securities Issues. Commissioner Peirce served as counsel to SEC Commissioner Paul S. Atkins. She also worked as a staff attorney in the SEC's Division of Investment Management. Commissioner Peirce was an associate at Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, now Wilmer Hale, and clerk for Judge Roger Andewelt on the Court of Federal Claims. Commissioner Peirce earned her bachelor's degree in economics from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and her JD from Yale Law School. Okay, with that, I would love to dive into the topic of CCO liability. Commissioner Peirce, you have been, as I, as I mentioned earlier, so instrumental in moving the conversation forward over the last few years. What has been a, a principal driver for you in this space to further this dialogue? What's, what's been part of your motivation? My motivation is that I think that compliance personnel at firms are a hugely important piece of the regulatory picture in the financial industry. Um, so the way I view it, is that we have a really big team of people at the SEC who are out there now our new office of division our new division of examinations um, formerly OC now a division has people out and looking at firms and and that's very important to do and then obviously there's Finra which is also looking at at firms and, and individuals in the industry but even with this number of people at the regulators, there is a need for, I mean, coverage is not going to be 100%. We all know that's not possible. Right. Um, the numbers of registered entities are rising. And so we have to operate in a model where we're working with the firms and the people that we work with at the firms are compliance personnel. And so if you don't get good people in those jobs, you're not, the, the whole compliance structure isn't going to work. And, you know, again, I operate on the on the idea that most firms are trying to do the right thing. And we have very complicated, very complicated set of rules and requirements. And so there has to be some feedback, some working together. And I think the compliance people at a firm play a really important role in being a bridge and saying to the operational people at the firm, the people who are who are providing the advice or doing the day-to-day interfacing with clients, they need to hear from compliance people about how to do that in a way that's compliant with our many rules. And so it's it's a partnership of sorts. And if you have a liability regime that doesn't work, then you're going to scare good people away from taking those jobs and the whole thing will break down. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate those those remarks. And it's actually it's a good segue talking about the compliance officer's role inside of their firms as we kind of segue into into the survey that actually was was recently distributed that was just on this exact topic. So on December twenty-first, twenty twenty, the National Society of Compliance Professionals distributed a survey regarding CCO liability to its 2,000 plus members of chief compliance officers, legal practitioners, and other compliance professionals. The, the survey consisted of approximately 15 relevant questions and a comment section and was collected over a two-week time period between January uh, or through January 5th, 2021. When it concluded, the survey was completed by more than 10% of the NSCP membership, so almost 230 individuals, with over 61% of those participants actually serving in the role of chief compliance officer. 
the data reflects some incredibly useful you know, information that I, I think will be really beneficial to the SEC and to the industry as, as we continue the ongoing dialogue regarding the issue of CCO liability. And I guess I'd also just you know, quickly comment that I think you know, having such a strong response to the survey over such a short time period, I think is emblematic that, that, that you're, you're spot on here, Commissioner Peirce. This is a really important issue to folks that are practicing in this space. And I think it also demonstrates a, a, a deep desire on the part of the industry to, to continue the ongoing dialogue here. Taking a look at the survey specifically, what was, what was your biggest takeaway uh, from, from the survey and the metrics involved? Or what was one thing that, that really stood out to you? Well, I think there are a couple things that stood out. First of all, I'll say the survey is very useful. I mean, it's exactly this kind of feedback that I need to think about this topic and other topics, it's really helpful to kind of get in the heads of the people who are doing the job day to day. And and so I think the survey provided some really useful insights. But I think it was interesting to see the percentage of, of people who were worried about the liability uncertainty question. And so seeing that people are trying to grapple with that, it was quite enlightening. I think a, a couple of other things that really struck me in the comments, and it, it's always... I, I've done a survey before too, and I, and I found some of the most interesting feedback you got is in the comment section, and that was true in this survey too, where um, I think one commenter said, you know, it, it, it's really scary to face liability based on something that you yourself can't control. And I think that's, that's quite a telling comment. And another comment that I found telling along those same kind of lines is you might have someone who's been in the industry for a very long time and has a has had a, a really excellent unblemished career, something goes wrong and your your career and your reputation are suffer as a result. And and that's really um really a concern. And and I don't I want to make sure that the the ground rules that we put in place for liability are not catching people like that. You know, it's it's not a situation where we're going after people who are trying to and have poured their lives into doing the right thing. So those were a couple of things that jumped out at me. Mm -hmm. Those are all excellent points. And I, I would I would agree with you. One of the items that 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 also kind of stuck out to me was, you know, in, in the survey, 53% uh, of the participants said that, that they were concerned about personal liability being imposed in cases where there was simple negligence r rather than say reckless conduct or even intentional conduct on the part of the compliance officers. Do you also share that as a, as a possible concern? Absolutely. I think that's, that's one of the areas that gives me the greatest concern. I mean, I, I think, look, if you have a situation where, and, and you mentioned the speech that I gave, but I think that that those themes are, are ones that I think a lot about, right? If you have a situation where someone, a compliance officer was assisting colleagues at the firm in, in committing a fraud, well, you know, obviously you don't get to skate just because you're wearing that CCO jacket. But, and if you have a situation where a CCO is actively trying to cover things up or make it difficult for our examiners when they come in by changing dates on documents or changing documents or those kinds of things, obviously that's going to be problematic. Sure. But if you, if you have a situation where something goes wrong at the firm and we come in and say, well, 
wait a minute, why didn't you see that issue? A compliance officer is going to say a couple things. First, you're looking at it in hindsight, and it's really great to look at things in hindsight because you know where the problems were. But if right. you're a compliance officer, right. you don't know where the problems are. You're trying to figure that out. And so how can we um, how can we put ourselves in the shoes of the compliance officer and say, okay, this is someone who was really dealing with quite a few issues and was was trying to do a good job on those issues. Something fell through the cracks. Obviously, that's a very different situation than you when you have someone who has the title of compliance officer and doesn't do anything in the job. Those are the cases where I think it, it the line is sometimes hard to draw, and that's that's the line I really need help drawing. Right? Where does where does it it cross the line into someone essentially not doing the job? And then further, where does it cross the line to say that you should be held responsible for not having done your job in that area? There aren't really easy. It's it's that third category that can really be quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you brought up a really interesting point, and I'd, I'd like to, to dig into it a little bit because you mentioned b- being in, the, you know, it is sometimes I think during the examination process, I know CCOs and compliance officers can feel like the, the hindsight factor, you know, the, the kind of uh, after the fact that it's occurred, we're going back and we've got perfect clarity as to what happened or what was going on at the time. But, but that, that can be something that I think a lot of folks struggle with. And in that same light, I guess, because you, you mentioned being, being in the shoes, you know, w- would there be a piece of advice that you might have for someone at a firm who's wearing multiple hats, right? And, and serving in the role of CCO, but also doing other things at, at the firm. And, and what, what would be maybe some, uh, you know, best practices or, or a good piece of advice for folks that are kind of serving in that type of capacity? Well, I think one thing is you have to remember that if you have that compliance capacity as part of your job responsibility, you have to take it seriously. And that can be difficult because if, especially if you're doing another role that is a revenue generator, and then you have this, this compliance role, which is viewed as being, and I think this came through in the survey too, you know, it's viewed as being a cost center. I think you, you've got to devote the time that you need to, to that part of the job. And I like to, to emphasize that I think that compliance is actually not, I mean, if you really look at it holistically, it's about helping the firm to be successful at serving its clients. And so, yes, it does impose costs, but in, at the end of the day, it should make you better at what you do um, and also avoid future problems. So I, I, I hope that's a way for, for people who have multiple hats to sell to the rest of the firm that, you know, you've got to give me the time and the resources I need to do this part of my job that, that's labeled compliance. I think that is such an excellent point. And I would just echo that thought. In fact, the premise of this podcast has been for essentially to be a masterclass for the securities, legal and compliance professional. But really what it is, is it's helping securities, legal and compliance professionals elevate themselves and their firms. And ultimately, that's what compliance is all about. It's about elevating our firms. It's about making the ultimate services that our advisor and broker dealer and municipal advisor firms provide their clients that much better. Right. And that we can exactly really significant, valuable contributors to the business in that way. 
That's great. Let me ask you one other thing. You know, one of the uh, areas that has certainly continued to, I think, take on a, a greater, I don't know, uh, maybe market share, or you're seeing a lot more of this uh, today than, say, even five or 10 years ago. But in the role of outsourced chief compliance officers, what are your feelings on the, the role of the outsourced CCO? And how do you think they fit into this conversation? Well, I think an outsourced CCO can be um, can be a good way to go about the CCO role. I mean, it depends. Obviously, every firm has to figure out what the right fit is for it. You know, if you have a large firm, you're going to obviously have in-house compliance department. But an outsourced CCO can be an independent voice, and I think that that can be useful. Again, you know. I'm speaking for myself here, but I can see that as being a, a valuable way to to get an objective approach from someone whose futures and fortunes are not tied exclusively to that firm, which means that if there are problems, that person has an easier time walking away um, and so can afford to be forceful when there's really an issue that the person sees. But again, I think that Every firm, when it's when it's starting and then throughout its life, needs to be asking itself, is the compliance structure that we have in place working for our firm, given the size it is, given the scope of activities that we're engaged in? You know, that changes over time, too. And so as the nature of those activities changes, you better make sure, too, that your person or people that are doing compliance for you have the right set of talents to go and experience to go with what the firm is becoming. Um, and I think that that sometimes when we see problems in, in compliance at firms, sometimes it's very clear that the person doing the job simply was ill-suited for that job and was almost set up in a way to fail. And so I think it's important for you all as compliance professionals to be making the point that it's, you know, that taking a look periodically at the compliance function is important. Um, and it's important for people who are running firms to to do that periodically. I think that's a great, a great message for the industry as a whole to hear that, because I do think there is this sense that and actually, you know, OC director Pete Driscoll talked about this during at the end of November, talking about compliance, having the resources necessary and the time necessary in being able to have in many ways an objective and independent voice within their firms. And I think the outsourced CCO would certainly provide that. But it, obviously, in-house CCOs do the job incredibly effectively. Where again, it makes sense to have an in-house CCO. But at the end of the, you know, at the end of the day, it still is all about empowering the CCO to have yeah. that, to have those resources. And certainly for firms who maybe want, if they want to focus on, you know, the building client relationships, making investments, and don't necessarily want to focus on the compliance side, bringing in someone that has, you know, expertise in that area to focus on that and dedicate resources to that could be a, a good viable option. You know, th there has, again, I really appreciate all of the ways that you've helped to advance the conversation here. With, with an upcoming change in administration, a, a new SEC chair and a, a new head of enforcement, you know, you, you personally have done so much work over the last few years in this, in this area around CCO liability. Do you see there being any slowdown in the positive momentum and, and dialogue that's taken place? I think that this question will be an important one for, for 
whoever comes in as the chairman and whoever, you know, the, the, the full commission as well. So, I mean, the chair obviously has a has a fairly big effect on the agency's agenda, which will then in turn affect the requirements and rules that compliance personnel and others at firms are, are trying to implement and, and um, you know, build the the processes around, but also in choosing an enforcement director, typically enforcement cases stay fairly constant in terms of, of the mix. But, you, you know, you see changes in response to what's going on in the market, and you also see changes potentially in response to the priorities of the, of the chair. And so, so I think that that will make a difference. But I plan to... Um, raise with the, whoever the chair is and, and with my colleagues at the commission and with um, the director of enforcement, my concerns in this area. And, um, and also, you know, it's something that I talk to Pete Driscoll about quite frequently. You know, he and I share a common belief in the importance of the compliance personnel, which that came through in, in the speech that you referenced that he gave. And so I think that, that I'll continue to work with, with him on that issue. But I think it's also important for whoever is in that chair spot to hear from compliance officers directly. I mean, this the survey really illustrated it is helpful to hear directly those calls for more guidance coming from, from people who are doing the job day to day. And so um, I hope that that we can maybe arrange some kind of a way for that conversation to happen between the commission and the compliance community, whether it's a one-off roundtable or whether there's some other mechanism. Now, Pete Driscoll does run outreaches with um, with compliance personnel, which is I think is important. But I'd like also for the commission to to be hearing those perspectives directly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's again a, a fantastic idea, and certainly one that would be welcomed by the industry. And um, and so, just again, really, really appreciate your your thoughts and feedback there. Speaking of things that I think were welcomed by the industry, we're gonna we're gonna switch gears a little bit and move to another topic, which is the recent SEC rulemaking on the new marketing rule. Uh, this was passed just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you've already seen a. a a wealth of response from the industry on a number of the new changes. Um, in direct response to the rule passing, you uh, essentially applauded the effort of the commission and Dahlia Bloss in, um, in in updating the regulations to reflect changes in our industry and investor practices. But had a, a, a few reservations that the release may you know may not be clear enough in certain parts of its principles based requirements because it could lead to a, a flow of requests for interpretation and clarification as advisors and others start to work to implement the rule. Were there any other you know, key takeaways or, or one or two things that you would like to share with this, with this specific audience of, of compliance professionals? Well, look, it's, a, it's an important area. Advertising and solicitation are important areas. And the, the rules have been in place. The old rules were in place for quite a long time and were really barnacled with a whole bunch of uh, staff interpretations around them. And so this is a this is a big change and it's going to require a lot of your time. I mean, as with most of our releases these days, it's really long and it's hard to get through. And so I think it will take some time for people to process it. It sure. was our it was our pre-holiday uh, gift to everyone so that you had something to to uh, read while uh 
your kids were opening presents, I guess. 500, but, pa- um, 500 pages of, of, of uh, regulation. That's exactly the, the gift everybody was waiting for, I think. <laughs> or else people were using it as a fire starter. I don't know. But but no, I think it, it's it's important for people to pay close attention to it. As I as you alluded to, I, I, I think it could have been more principles-based. I think at some point we have to trust firms based on the fact that there's a fiduciary duty, right? So it's not that firms can do whatever they want, but the, the, there is an element of judgment in everything that firms do. And if you are not thinking about things through a fiduciary lens, you have a massive problem anyway. So I think the principles that are laid out in the, in the release are consistent with that fiduciary approach. Then there's some very specific requirements. And so I would urge people to pay attention to those specific requirements ask us questions because as with any big rule like this, we're writing it and we're thinking about it one way. And there may be a particular scenario that you need help on. Other firms probably need help on that same scenario. Come talk to us and do it sooner rather than later so that we can process those things. If there are things that you think we need to issue frequently asked questions or other types of clarification on, please tell me, tell the staff, I'm interested in hearing those things. It's better to get the questions answered through regulatory interpretation rather than through enforcement down the road. So I would say, you know, those are, those are, I'm sure the ways that you all are processing this anyway, but, but do pay attention to the particulars. If you're presenting something positive about your firm, just make sure that you're doing it in context. And I think that comes through very clearly in the in the rule that that's something you need to do. So I, I look forward to, to, to hearing what people's feedback is after they've had a little more time to process. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned kind of at the end uh, for firms, you know, with the new rules, certainly you can look at the technical, you know, black and white letter of what it says. But but the idea that you want to view things in context, I mean, that's the whole, I mean, you know, our show is called the Compliance in Context podcast. And I mean, part of that is because the, the contextual aspects of any piece of marketing or advertising are going to be so important. Even now, uh, you know, looking at you industry on testimonials and endorsements, right, which are going to be allowed under the new rule. And certainly then you're going to have the proper disclosures about, you know, is the person, uh, uh, what's the relationship with the person? Is it a client? Is it a third party? And also are they being compensated, right? Or is there indirect compensation or those other things? But in addition to all of that, you still need to look at it in the sense of is what you're saying is it being done in such a way that it's going to render <laughs> the actual piece of marketing or something misleading somehow right i think that's exactly yeah. yeah well you know it's not just on the marketing front that the sec has been incredibly active of late there's been lots of different uh rulemakings and and requests going on and in fact you know just a couple weeks ago the sec requested comment on allowing limited purpose broker dealers to custody digital asset securities, which would be consistent with SEA rule 15C3-3, uh, the customer protection reserves and custody of securities. This is they they made the request, you know, provided that those limited purpose broker dealers uh, do not custody any other assets. And so um, I know this is a space that you're also very passionate about. Would really welcome, you know, what 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 are your thoughts on the request? And and do you think 
this helps move the needle on the question of you know how to allow broker dealers to to custody digital securities where the procedures for holding these assets may be less assured than of holding ordinary securities well, so a couple things. First, I feel like this topic area gives me a little bit of a sense what it's like to be in compliance at a firm where you're trying to get the firm to do something and it's just feels like you're pushing and pushing to get it done. And, uh, and so when you finally get a little bit of a, a change, you're pretty happy. And so I'm, I'm happy that this uh, particular piece of, of guidance and then request for comment went out. I think it's something that firms who are trying to get into this digital asset security space have been have been asking for for quite a while. It is very limited in scope. I mean, you mentioned some of the limitations there, which is that you know you're really limited to digital asset securities. You can't hold other kinds of digital assets, and so those limitations will have some effect on how useful it is. But it is a start. It's a step, and it's an important step. And getting people to provide feedback is so important. You know, it can be difficult in this area for people to do that. But we actually also recently, in response to a step that Wyoming took, Wyoming is on the cutting edge of, of digital asset uh, regulation. And so, so they took a step in, in identifying one of their entities as, as being a qualified custodian for Advisors Act um, purposes. And so we responded with a request for comment there. And so I, I urge people who are interested on the advisor side as well to respond to that, to that request for comment. So we still have uh, we still have work to do in this space, but it's it's one where it's really important for us to hear from people who are who are involved and who know the practical issues and the practical questions that still await answers. Yeah, yeah, I, I love the mantra of "there's still work to do" or "there's still wood to chop." I feel like that is the compliance mantra. Like you could always do more compliance, you know. <laughs> like we're we're always yeah. still working to, to make it better. All right, well, we've gone kind of we're going to move a little bit from uh, the more micro stuff on the marketing and advertising and, and on crypto and digital assets and back out to the macro a, a little bit. And then we'll close with maybe a couple fun questions today. So on the macro side, are, are there you know, one or two things affecting the industry right now that, that you're really interested in or kind of focusing in on in 2021? Well, I think there's a lot that, that I'm interested in, in seeing progress on. It, a lot will depend on the agenda that the new chair sets. And so I'll, I'll you know be working in response to that. But a couple things that I think we need to spend some time on. Modernizing the record-keeping rules in the broker-dealer space is one, is one area. And I think more generally, COVID has taught us something that a lesson we should have embraced earlier, which is that we've got to move away from the paper-based view of the world. Mm -hmm. We're in a digital world now. That's the world we have to write our rules and modernize our rules to accommodate. And frankly, that's how most customers and clients want to interact with firms now. And so we need to push forward in that. So that'll be one area. And then the other rules that need modernization are the transfer agent rules. And that's that's an area that I hope we'll see some progress on. We, we had a concept release out a number of years ago now, and I'd like to push forward and see that move to a proposal. That's great. That's great. Thank you for the, the I know people, all of the items that you mentioned, I know are, are frequent uh, themes on the uh, 
Nestle side of compliance professionals has a, a broker dealer and an advisor for and hear a lot of those topics get discussed quite often there. All right, let's let's get you out of here with a, a couple more fun questions. So, you know, we we've all certainly had um, I'll say a, a bit of an up and down year, maybe a, a little bit turbulent year. We've all adjusted. But thinking ahead to, to maybe, you know, later this year, hopefully in 2021, what's what's one place that you're most looking for to visiting after all of the COVID-19 travel restrictions are lifted? Well, I'm hoping to make a trip to Maine this summer. Um, I used to, when I was a child, we used to often make trips up in the summer. So that's that's a goal. But I feel like what I should really answer is that I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to going somewhere in, in the city where you can actually be around other people, not have a mask on, sit down and, and have a meal inside a restaurant. So that'll be fun when we don't even think anymore about about that being novel. I'm really looking forward to that. Certainly, I've had it a lot easier than many people, uh, most people in in this in this time. And so I, you know, my heart goes out to people who are still and have suffered during this this time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, a, a great point. And um, as far as your thoughts on. As far as your thoughts on you know go- going and seeing other people, I agree with you there. Like seeing other people's faces, not necessarily on a screen, would be amazing. Miriam Lefkowitz was a guest on the show a little earlier th- this year, or I should say at the end of last year, and she kind of had a, a similar a similar sentiment. The other thing I, I miss is is live music. I, you know, going to a concert or, or any kind of live music is another one. Um, all right, final question. In the, we actually talked a little bit about it actually earlier during our our kind of conversation today. How the the goal of this podcast that we mentioned even back you know early in the show was to really be a masterclass for the securities legal and compliance professional and to help them kind of elevate themselves in the compliance program inside their firms. What's one piece of advice that that you might share uh, that you would give to a, a new compliance professional that was just getting into the business now? So I'm going to I'm going to take the liberty of giving a couple a couple things. One is the job that you're getting into is a really important one and you know you are serving uh, such an essential function a function that can help protect many people um many investors and and so in the market the integrity of the marketplace so embrace that and enjoy that you're you're contributing to society in an important way and the second point i would make and this is one that i don't make just to people who are going into compliance but i think it's it's relevant here as well be intellectually curious and be inquisitive and be skeptical ask questions and and i think don't be embarrassed that you don't know the answers. I think you've got to go in and and ask what you want to ask. Um, I think we've all asked questions that sometimes we're embarrassed to have asked, but it's better to ask the dumb questions um, along the way because you might end up getting information that's quite valuable and useful as you're doing your job. Um, so don't don't be embarrassed to be skeptical. Don't be embarrassed to ask questions. And then finally, don't hesitate to reach out to me and others um, in at the SEC and at, in other regulatory contexts to raise issues that you're seeing where you see that there are problems because sometimes it's the freshest eyes to a problem that that find the solution or or that identify a problem that other people haven't seen. So don't assume that your perspective is not valuable just because you don't have lots of years of experience under your belt. That said, if you do have lots of experience under your belt, 
and you have suggestions for me, I am so uh, happy to hear from you and, and would love to talk to you. That is wonderful, wonderful advice. And I just have to say, as we close, thank you so much, Commissioner Peirce, for taking the time to join us today. We are so appreciative of your thoughtfulness in approaching a lot of really, really tough to tackle subjects and, and um, challenging areas. And we look forward to, to continuing the conversation with you on these important subjects like CCO liability and marketing and others. And so again, just thank you so much for you know taking the time to join us today. Well, Patrick, thank you. And, and thanks to the NSCP for being willing to engage with me on these topics. I found that engagement to be helpful and, and look forward to that continuing in 2021. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Commissioner Purse for coming on the show to share her invaluable insights on the issue of CCO liability. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Feel free to send us questions and give us your feedback by checking us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more.